You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on May 10th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was subsistence and survival. Live music was performed by Carl Reese and Terry Schwartz. Idle mind is the devil's playground. An idle mind is the devil's workshop. An idle mind is the devil's workshop. An idle mind is the devil's workshop. I need something to do. So our first speaker tonight is Jeffrey. Last name? Anybody? Smith. Jeffrey Smith. So Jeffrey traveled over 3,500 miles to witness the art of subsistence and survival firsthand. Born the son of an altruist, he was fortunate, perhaps, to blissfully evade the challenges of this lifestyle for many years. Admittedly, he only knew survival as a right, often taken for granted, rather than a privilege to be earned. However, a passion for culture, exploration, and a humanitarian spirit naturally inspired him to buy a one-way ticket from Cleveland, Ohio, to a rural Alaskan village. It was this decision and the relationships he built, exploring this new, unfamiliar landscape, that allowed him to truly appreciate and admire subsistence and survival the first time. Please welcome Jeff. Hoka Mandukni Jugni Yakdugaluchi Winga Ichba Awa. I just said, hello, my name is Jeff, or Big Eyes, and I'm happy that you're all here to see me tonight. And so uh, you might be wondering how this white guy from Cleveland, Ohio learned how to speak Yupik. Um, so it all began in the spring of 2012 when I was at a job fair at Kent State University. And I'm in a big long line for a local school district waiting to talk to someone and I notice a table in the corner. And there's nobody in that line and there's a nice big sign that says, teach in Alaska. And so I say, what the hell, and I head over. And somewhere in between learning about honey buckets and a place with no roads, I score an interview for later that night. And it goes really well, and then two days later, I have an interview with the assistant superintendent, and that goes really well. And an hour after that interview, I get a call to become the next seventh grade teacher in Tuntutuliak, Alaska. <laughs> Besides thinking that was fast, I thought, I bet they offered this job to any idiot willing to take it. <laughs> Turns out I was their idiot. And so that's how I ended up in Tuntutuliak, Alaska, and how I learned a little bit of the Yupik language. Um, but as you can imagine, growing up in Cleveland, life is a little bit different in Tuntutuliak. So, you know, but I kind of have the mentality when in Tuntutuliak, do as the Yupiks do. So when my good friend Iluk Pavla invited me to go bird hunting in the spring of my first year, I jumped at the opportunity. So it was a Sunday, maybe about 8 in the morning, when I show up at Iluk's house. And I'm amazed at all the stuff that he's bringing with us, you know. Just, of course, there's the essentials, but he's bringing all this stuff and all this food. He's packing coffee and dry fish and a gudak and crackers and sandwiches and spam and Vienna sausages. So besides wondering why anyone in their right mind would ever want to eat Spam or Vienna sausages, I was wondering why we needed all this stuff. You know, we're only going on a day trip. But anyway, we throw it all in the boat, and we head downriver 
uh, south towards the coast of the Bering Sea to this spot that Iluk really likes to hunt at. And so we pull up on shore. Uh, it's high tide at the time, and we anchor the boat. We wade in, and we go uh, not too far in, but we, we gather some wood on our way, and we build a blind, right? This is my first time hunting, never shot a gun. And so he gave me a little bit of background. We're out there. It's a beautiful day. Within the first half hour, we see a flock of geese on the horizon. And so we crouch deep into the blind. He looked, pulls his hands up to his mouth to make a bird call. Thank you. And... Sure enough, a bird turns and heads towards us. And so I'm getting all excited. I'm crouched, you know, it's my first time out there. And I'm leaning, you know, it's coming, it's coming, it's getting over us. And all of a sudden, your look goes, umpy, shoot, hurry up, shoot. And so I lean back and <laughs> fall directly on my ass from the force of the 12 gauge. Yeah, I learned my lesson the hard way. But I got better as the day went on. And we ended up maybe with 15 geese, a swan, and a crane by the end of the day for him to bring back to his family. And so we walk back to the boat, you know, towards the end of the day, maybe 12 hours of hunting, you know. By the time we get back, the tide was way out during the day, you know, and we have maybe 10 minutes, we assume, until the water's high enough to catch us so we can go. Um, and so we're just chatting it up when all of a sudden, it kind of jumps up with this huge sense of urgency. And I'm like, what's wrong? And he said we have to get the boat in the water. The water has started to go back the other way and it hasn't caught our boat yet. And so we start pushing and pushing and pushing. And so we soon realize we are stuck for the evening. And so I look at look, and I ask him, what the hell do we do now? And he said, you go get some wood and I'll build a shelter. And so I walk back uh, to the blind and get the wood that we had brought over there. And by the time I get back, your look has already assembled a little shelter in the boat with the oars and a tarp and some string. And you can imagine by that time, we had worked up quite an appetite from hunting all day and uh, from getting prepped to stay overnight. And so we get the fire going, and sure enough, uh, fire-roasted Spam and Vienna sausages were on the menu for that night. And I will never forget how delicious and satisfying <laughs> Those flavor-packed mystery meats were that night. It really kind of pushed me through the 35-degree night in the boat. By morning, maybe around 9 a.m. or so, the tide had come up and picked up the boat, and we were able to start heading back to Trent. Of course, I said we were hunting on a Sunday, so that means this is a Monday, and I'm supposed to be at work teaching. Uh, but I think getting stranded on the coast of the Bering Sea is a decent enough reason to no-call, no-show for work. But partaking in subsistence activities like that that really helped me build trust there and build the relationships that kept me going uh, in Trent and let, allowed me to stay there for three years. You know, I really enjoyed my time there, uh, and I find it really interesting when, I, when people hear, oh, that I had this rural experience, the most common questions I get are, how the hell did you stay there for three years? Or, why would anybody choose to live there? Honestly, after hearing those questions so many times, it's really started to irk me a little bit. I'm like, if you dig beneath the surface and you spend some time there, you really get to know the community, you'll find it's a place just full of love and kindness and community and passion for culture and tradition and the subsistence way of life. I really wish that, you know, when people think about places like that, they think about, you know, why does somebody choose to live there? Well, it's because it's home and 
Home means, in turn, in places like it, that you know every face, you know every place, and you get the thrill and the privilege of partaking in subsistent activities that have kept people surviving there since time immemorial. So I uh, want to just say I enjoyed my time in Tunt and Goya Nakfa Nijungni Luchi. I'll end there. Thank you all for listening. Our next speaker is Bob Pilokowski. Did I? Smith, also known as Bob Smith. Many of you might recognize Bob from the CBJ Household Hazardous Waste Station he ran two years ago. There he knows he enlightened your load, bringing you much happiness, however temporary. He wants again to thank those citizens who brightened his day with no longer needed treasures he recycled onto others here and around Alaska. Living life with zest, Bob has had many roles from dad and husband to trapper to scientist to law enforcement to builder plus many, many more. What brings him here today is a story from one of his favorite lives when he and his lovely wife Sylvia lived a subsistence lifestyle 90 air miles from any road located just west of McKinley Park. Bob admits you should check with Sylvia after the talk if you want to find out what really happened. Please welcome Bob Smith. Well, good evening, brothers and sisters. Thanks for coming. My story is about subsistence and survival. And let's see, how could I say? My early life was dominated by fear. It wasn't any directed fear until my brother took me trapping. And I watched him club to death a couple of squirrels. It was a turning point in my life. I held the squirrels and I wondered, what is this thing called life? that could leave so easily. There was no difference in life between me and the squirrel or between me and the tree. And it was suddenly gone and I put a name to my fear. That was a fear of death. I was only eight years old, but somehow at that point, I understood that in order to live, other critters had to die. And I felt I had to take responsibility for those lives that I took. So I started living subsistence in a big hardware city back east. I trapped the parks. I trapped the streams and the rivers where most people didn't know there was any game around, but there was lots. I was in nature too. I saw beauty all around me more so than I saw in the factories and in the housing developments or the projects. I learned a lot about animals. I had to be observant. Trapping in the parks was not legal, so I had to watch out for the, you know, the park rangers and uh, the other predators that frequented the parks. I became hypervigilant. I learned to run. I was never caught, but I think I was really lucky. I just did this subsistence, of, you know, from a neophyte to I got better and better at it, going all the way up to foxes. It's amazing what's in parks. At 17, I decided a subsistence was the only thing I could do. Uh, along maybe with studying wildlife, and I, my parents bought me a one-way ticket uh, to Alaska. <laughs> I, I bless them for it. Uh, I studied wildlife and fisheries at the university, and I had a lot of great jobs. Some of uh, you folks that have um, been around for a while might have seen The Wolfman by Wolper or uh, Bill Bird's Animal uh, World. I was in both of those, working on doll sheep and wolves. 
but I didn't want to become a biologist, and I had met my lovely wife, and she wanted to go out into the woods too. The native land claims had just been settled. This was pre-pipeline Alaska, so it was really a different world. And we claimed land as soon as land became available, and it was at the west end of Mount McKinley Park, which was very isolated at the time. It was a short time later, we flew out there in a super cub, landed on a gravel bar, cleared the rocks and the logs, we had everything we owned in the world and everything we felt we needed. And we started living subsistence, embracing the, the earth. Didn't know very much. Uh, nature was my mentor. I didn't have many people helping me out. I had the book, How to Build Your Home in the Woods by Bradford Anger, but our cabin the first year was sometimes 40 below in the morning after a night without the wood stove going. That first winter, a friend landed a plane or tried to land a plane on an airstrip. Or he actually landed okay. It was taking off that he landed in the river. So we were in a river at 20 below pulling the plane out. Uh, I once shot a moose in my underwear. I didn't, it wasn't in my underwear, and I didn't plan to be in my underwear, but it came by early in the morning. And Sylvia and I both ran out there, and, and we had our winter meet. So we had adventures. It was wonderful. Hey, and we've been together 45 years, and Sylvia, I love you so much. I was out there for about 14 years and Sylvia a year or two less. Uh, we were in our cabin uh, baking some bread one October. It was the third October. And our cabin, though still rustic, was now warm. And Sylvia made the best bread. It was starting to smell really good. We had the door cracked because the cabin was hot. And our dog, we have, had a Karelian bear dog from Finland. This was one of the famous Karelians that was responsible for, or certainly in helping Finland stop Russia from taking over the country. He was an incredible dog, uh, a dog for all seasons. He got in a fight with the wolverine. He only weighed 30 pounds, and he bested the wolverine. He chased grizzlies away from the house. He brought in moose uh, just because he liked to eat meat. And whenever, wherever he went, he made friends. Anyway, he burst out the door barking, and we thought, great. It was a couple inches of snow outside, about 20 degrees. We were going to get a moose. And so we ran to the river, which was, we were on a point in the river. And when we got down there, he wasn't around. So we walked back to the cabin to go out the trail back in the forest where Chaco was barking. And I realized, looking at the rifle, I didn't have any ammo. So we went to the house, got some ammo. Then, you know, again, I had a lot to learn, you know. So we went back there, and in most interior places, uh, the trees are really thick along the river. Then there are some tussocks, and then if there's any hills, there's more trees. So we went back there. The sun had actually set, and I thought to myself, I am not going to be able to shoot with my sights, but I was confident enough that I could shoot along the barrel. Chaco was barking like a crazy dog in one spot. Charco, Chaco's approach to life was charge them and they scatter. He was not charging. We couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, we got over to him to within about 15 feet of him, and Sylvia and I were talking to each other saying, what is going on? I don't see any moose tracks. I don't see any moose. When suddenly the whole hillside was covered with wolves coming at us. It was only about 30 or 40 feet away. Now, I worked wolves with Gordon Haber in McKinley Park. I am not afraid of wolves, and I've seen a number of attacks. And uh, I immediately thought, this is a predatory attack. Freeze frame. The whole thing only took two seconds. This is going to take a lot longer to tell, but hopefully less than my seven minutes. Uh, oh. Okay. Uh, there was never, had never been at that time a wolf uh, attack on humans validated in North America. 
but I knew this was a wolf attack. It just froze. What do I do? Well, it, it's things unfroze. And I have, did something I've never done before in my life or since, and I don't know how I broke my finger or my wrist, but I shot from the hip. Again, the wolves were only 30 feet away when they came out of the forest at us, and the wolf fell at our feet. I was shocked, you know, I'm, I've always felt I was guided as we all are if we accept it. Um, and then it, the wolves kept coming, even after the shot, even uh, with the flames coming out of the barrel. I lifted the rifle to my shoulder and another wolf died. This time it looked like a Roman candle. Uh, the flames just came out and uh, I don't know if it was their colleagues falling down or the flames or the loud sound, but the wolves disappeared instantly. We we're just in, in shocked silence for a little bit. And it, uh, we had meat for Chaco for the winter, and we had hides to buy our necessities. But uh, very much so, we could have been chewed on while alive by those wolves. I've seen moose getting eaten alive and, and sheep and caribou. That could have been us. It wasn't because I remembered to get the ammo or somebody instructed me to get the ammo. I'm thankful always for all life that makes the body that allows you to tell, to tell this story and to keep living. Uh, ain't no difference between broccoli and moose. They're, they're both alive, they both have consciousness. We've got, I've gotta be thankful for it. And I also have to remind myself that I have to be aware that I could become that uh, ultimate gift and because um, there's no guarantee that something's not gonna take me. Thank you. Our third speaker this evening is Jonathan Smith. Jonathan Smith, known to many as Mr. Smith, that hard-ass science teacher from JDHS, has lived in Alaska since 1985. He came here at the tender age of 18 from Wallingford, Connecticut, a world away in both distance and perception. He brings to you tonight a story of his bumpy transition from uptight East Coast boy to Alaska man. Please welcome Jonathan. I was brought up in Wallingford, Connecticut, halfway between New York City and Boston, and uh, I was kind of a nature lover. I did everything I could. I joined the Boy Scouts. I went hiking. I canoed. But I was never more than half a mile from a road or a house. By the time I was a senior in high school, I said, you know, I really want to go out and explore something a little bit more wild. So I made the decision that I was going to do college in Alaska. I applied to the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and because I was breathing, they accepted me. Uh, this story takes place at the end of September, that first year in college, and I got there, and I was extremely excited. I'm 18 years old, and uh, a, f a new friend of mine that I had met at school had invited me out on what he and his friends were calling a, a little hike. And so I said, great, you know, that's what I came here for. And they brought me to a trail called the Granite Tor Trail, which uh, if any of you have ever heard of it, it's just uh, northeast of, of Fairbanks, about 40 miles. And it's a 15-mile loop, uh, about seven miles in, eight miles on the return. And when you get to the very top of the loop, there's another mountain ridge that goes across, and you can kind of walk off the trail up a separate trail to a group of rock outcroppings that stand about 40 feet tall. And then there's another set at the other end of the mountain um, that you can also walk to. There were five of us, and I only knew 
one of the people that, that I was with, and as will often happen when you're doing anything sort of macho in Alaska, uh, a pecking order was soon established based on the experience in the outdoors, and you can imagine where City Boy from the East Coast was on that pecking order. Mark was at the top of the pecking order. He was an EMT. He uh, paraglided. He climbed mountains. And so, you know, he was the guy that was going to tell us what to do. We made the seven-mile hike out to the first set of granite tours, and he brought his climbing equipment. And he's climbing up the thing, you know, like a gazelle, and he's uh, repelling. And I, I had a little pack backpack with me uh, full of a water bottle, a, a can of fruit cocktail, a can opener to open said fruit cocktail, and a rain jacket just in case, but it was because it was a beautiful sunny day. Anyway, we're sitting there chatting while Mark is, you know, going up and down the rocks, and I'm looking eastward with another fellow, and we saw just this wall of dark clouds coming at us, and I had never seen anything like that before in my life. Beautiful, clear day, and then this just wall of black, and um, this fellow and I looked at each other and go, that's not good. <laughs> and so we're like, hey, Mark, look. And Mark goes, oh, yeah. And then he just kept on climbing. And so finally we said, you know, shouldn't we get going? And he said, well, I want to go over to the other Granite Tours, which was toward the clouds. And I'm saying, well, that's where the clouds are. Why don't we go the other way? And he's, oh, no, no, we got time. I wanted, you know, I, I came up here to do this. So we are walking over there, and we're on the top of this ridge above the trail. So we're not on the trail. We're on the top of this ridge, which was made mostly of shale, kind of slippery. And we get about halfway over, and that wall of clouds hit us. It came in fast. And within five minutes, none of us could see more than two feet. It got to the point where we were literally, I had my finger hooked in the belt loop of the fellow in front of me just so I could see where they were. And we were constantly talking to each other because we couldn't see each other. And we're at the top of this mountain ridge going from one set of these tours to the other. And at this point, every part of my body wants to say, sit down and just wait. Um, it was pouring, but Mark, Mark said, oh, we can get over there and we can have fun and blah, blah, blah. And none of the rest of us wanted to say anything because of that whole pecking order thing. We did not get over to the other set. We finally decided it was time to do something. And Mark said, well, let's just dive off of the ridge and we'll catch the U-trail as we come off the ridge. Sounds good to me. So we dove over the ridge, went down, and somehow we missed the trail. And so now we figured, well, okay, we'll go down into the valley and it'll be an eight, seven to eight mile walk and we'll eventually get out to the road again. No problem. Unfortunately, as we're walking, it's pouring and it's getting darker, and we walked for about four hours, and now it's completely dark, and it's pouring, and there's no road. Mark decides to go up the side of the mountain and see if we can get up above tree line to find the trail that way. Well, we walked up, got above tree line, didn't find anything, and then he just announced, he just sits down and announced, well, we're going to stay here for the night. We had nothing. I was the only one with a rain jacket. We found a little indentation in a rock that he called a cave, which allowed two people to kind of sit in there and be half wet. One person was a smoker and had a pack of damp paper matches. And I had my hands in the, my pocket the entire time, and so I was given the task of lighting the fire. The first match just rubbed off like chalk on the matchbook. We got it lit the second time. Uh, we used my can from my fruit cocktail to boil water, which was a savior, and we actually ended up spending two nights in that cave uh, because it started snowing. 
Mark taught us the joys of eating lichen. Anyway, somewhere along the line there, we started talking about what it would be like to die. And we also started trying to figure out what had happened. And at this point, those of us had, who had not said anything earlier, and probably should have said something earlier, started speaking up. And through that conversation and through looking at where the sunlight was coming from, we all realized that we had made a tragic mistake. When we were on the top of that ridge, and to this day, I am still amazed that we did this. We were walking from one set of tours to the other. Somehow we all four, or all five of us got turned around, and when we dropped off the ridge, we went the wrong way. And we walked eight miles into nowhere. So Mark, once he got that idea, once he accepted that idea as his own, he said, he said, all right, this is what we're going to do. The weakest of you are going to stay here, and I'm going to take this guy, the other strong guy in the, in the back, and we're going to go out and we're going to find help. Um, and so we were left behind. We let him take the last match. And the rest of us just sat there going, okay, well, how long can you live with water and, and lichen? Oddly enough, it uh, turned out that um, we were right. On their way out, they found the granite tours again. The fellow he took with them broke his leg up there on the granite tours. Mark started running down the trail once he found it, ran into a guy on a four-wheeler. They got out to the main road fairly quickly, flagged down a truck with a CB. They CB'd into Fairbanks. And I'm sitting there in this you know, makeshift little uh, hovel that we were in, and the sun had just come out. And I'm thinking, oh, this isn't so bad. Because the sun had come out, we were starting to dry out. And within a few seconds of the sun coming out, I hear whoop, 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 whoop. And a helicopter landed 10 feet from where our, our little cave was and picked us up. And so I'm in this helicopter flying back, and I made a promise to myself. Never again would I, was I going to allow inexperience not knowing anything or a lack of intelligence to prevent me from speaking. In other words, I'd become an Alaskan man. Our next speaker is Jenny Smith. Born in the desert, raised in the rainforest, all in the great Pacific Northwest. Educated at MIT with a bachelor's in aeronautics and astronautics, your resident rocket scientist finally found her way back home to Juneau in 2008. After 13 years of moving around the country as an Air Force officer and 10 more working as a civil servant for Eielson Air Force Base, she's thankful to be back where she belongs in Southeast Alaska! Exclamation mark. Please welcome Jenny. All right, 2010. In our family, 2010 means the year of camping. So we kind of came out of 2009 in a deepening financial crisis. We'd moved back to Juneau just the year before. We're paying a pretty penny for rent and still owned a house in North Pole that we're also paying for that was empty, we were trying to sell it, we'd had a renter, the renter had moved out, and there we were, going down a thousand bucks a month in the hole. So our savings was pretty well depleted, my credit cards were pretty well maxed, and along about Christmas time, my oldest son called home and said, Mom, I need some help, I'm trying to get in a place, he was down in the lower 48, and I thought, well, 
I probably I can just squeak through. I'll help him out in the next paycheck. I'll fill that oil tank in North Pole. So that's what I did. Turns out I was like a day late and about $500 short. And our house froze solid in the minus 40 degree weather in North Pole. So we start off 2010 and I'm thinking, what else could possibly go wrong? Well, long about February, we found out. So our landlord called up, and apparently he was going through some tough times too, breaking up, and uh, needed the house back. So he had to move back into our house we were living in, and we had to move out. So we had till the end of March to move out. So, you know, well, what do you do when you're broke? You got three kids, and you got to move out. Yeah, you look for some friends. So lucky for us, a dear old friend let us move into her house for a while. Her kids were all grown and gone. And we could stay there at least through the end of the school year, which was a great help. Then she was booked solid with company all summer long. So I thought, that's okay, that's okay, right? Plan B would be to send the kids to their father. And I could rough it. I could live in my car. I could do anything by myself, right? So that was what was going to happen. Until we found out that he was having problems too. And uh, he had to move out and he couldn't take the kids. So then what? So what's plan B? Well, you know, we're all right. I had a job, we had grocery money, we had a car, and we had a big tent, a really big tent. It's a four room tent. We called it our Taj Mahal tent. So, we found what we thought was a really beautiful campsite out at Oak Rec. We pitched our tent, we pumped up our great air mattresses, and we settled in to camp for the summer. And I'll never forget that first night as I'm zipping down the partition on my youngest son, Jordan, and he exclaims joyously, Ah, oh, at last the comfort of my own room. <laughs> So, you know, it, it wasn't all bad. You know, life was good if you didn't mind the rain and you didn't mind the crows. So, you know, I don't know if any of you remember 2010, that summer. It was pretty wet. In fact, it rained every single day but three while we were camping, every day. So I got really good at tarping after the first wet night. And... Uh, if it wasn't for the crows, oh my God, they were just driving us crazy, just caw, 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 you know, incessantly all night long. And they would only let up between midnight and two. For like two hours, we got some peace. That was it. You know, then as soon as uh, dawn's early light hit, boom, caw, 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 we'd just go on and on. So one day, you know, we finally got this tiny little break in the weather. We're kind of hanging out in camp. And here come the eagles. The eagles came to our rescue, just soaring through the trees, full wing spread, just zooming, unbelievable maneuvers. And the first eagle goes right through the crows, and they all go right after it, just chasing off this eagle, you know, caw, caw, the whole colony, you know. And then here comes mom or dad and, and junior crashing into the tree like George of the jungle, you know. And they go and they start attacking the crow's nests, just snap, crack, breaking branches, throwing down these nests, throwing them over a cliff. 
I didn't see him get anything, you know, but they were just breaking down all the nests. So after three days of eagle training, three days of raids, it was quiet. <laughs> it was as if the eagles were just saying, just shut the heck up, you know? They were just as frustrated as we are. So being that the camps only allow you to stay two weeks, we had to move, so we moved. We went over to Mendenhall Lake, which was much cooler. Camping by a, a giant icebox is a little cooler. They did have showers, nice hot showers, in a cinder block cement floor building. So as soon as you got out of the shower, no heat, kind of shake yourself dry and get the heck on out of there. Saw another little cool piece of nature while we were there. I saw these ducks, these mallards coming out of the lake and up through the woods over this little hill. I'm like, what the heck are the ducks doing in the woods? They're picking berries. They're picking blueberries. Who knew, right? <laughs> so what else? So while we're in the middle of this camping adventure, it was my high school class reunion. So, you know, I, I really didn't want to go. I wanted to see my friends, but it was really embarrassing being in this situation, you know. But we went. So we went to the only family-oriented event and thank God we did, first because a bunch of friends surprised us with a huge load of s'mores makings and a ton of firewood at our campground, so that was great. And then the second thing was, one of my old friends, uh, she worked for Clinkett Hyda Housing Authority and had a line on an apartment for us. So that was awesome. So I could sign my PFD away, having no money, because all my money went to day camps that summer. Um, and I got into a little two-bedroom apartment, which, of course, was much smaller than the house we lived in before, but much bigger than our tent, and it had a real kitchen and a bathroom. And so we were very grateful to have a roof over our heads and four walls, even though it was me in one bedroom, my daughter and her best friend in the other, and the boys in bunk beds in the living room. But, hey, life was good again. And so that Christmas... I found this really cool set of Christmas tree lights or battery-operated little Coleman lanterns. So every year we hang up those Christmas lights and we remember 2010, the year of camping. <laughs> the poets speak of how Poncho fell now. Left his living in a cheap hotel and the desert's quiet and Cleveland You are listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded on May 10, 2017 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was subsistence and survival. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org. Now he's going Some old gray federalists still say Could have had a many days They only let things so go Our fifth speaker for tonight is John Smith. One of John's three clinket names is Yan Wa Ka, meaning Popeye. And I'm going to apologize if I don't say this right. He is Kagwatan Chakudi Hit, Eagle Nest House. John is a cultural specialist at Thunder Mountain High School, providing students introductions and hands-on projects on wood carving, civil rights in Alaska, and how to harvest salmon. He and his wife, Victoria, an Indian studies paraeducator at Zanta Kahini, started a community garden at that middle school. Please welcome John. 
Vasayeti, how are you? Yake Exetini Yagagi. It's good to see you guys today. Gunishish Hati Hadi. Thank you all for being here. It's uh it's good to see your faces. And uh, I want to give a great honor to my father. His name is John Smith Jr. He was a military man, and he worked right out the Federal Building. He was in the Korean and World Wars, and he was honored at a Purple Heart. So I want to honor him right now for the things he did for me and all the tools that he prepared for me for what was to happen to me later on, and you'll, you'll understand in the story. My father is an African-American, and so are my sisters, so they, they, the color they look at just like this here, so don't take offense, and I'm not here to offend anybody. My mother is uh, Pauline Abbott, and comes from honorable people. You know, her mom was Edna, then Paulina, Lena Paul, then Martha Jack, which is uh, the caretaker or the owners, if you look at the history of Haynes, that Yaquan, that was our family, where, where our history comes from. Well, with that to say, you know, as a young man, my mom and dad were separated. And of course, my mom, is she's clinket and, and, you know, the history, she went through historical trauma, so she did a lot of drinking. And, then, and as a young man, I got hurt, and then my mom and them got separated, you know, and everything's fine. I had surgery later on in life where my teeth and stuff wasn't growing back, but I'm okay, and no offense to my mom, because I understand her trauma. But here to say, if you hear my father, African-American, and my mother, she's full-blooded clinket, my, my grandfather's an Irishman. So, you know, growing up, it was very um, abusive to myself, I felt, but it was a way of learning, and it did make me strong. So I share those things. And, and you know, as an educator, we're always trying to teach about our young ones and, and give them direction of who they are. And once you give them that direction, they find out where they're going. So me, you can understand, you know, I went to, to um, Harborview School, Marie Drake also, and of course, you know, them seeing my father and my, my sisters and them, you know, there's a lot of talk. So I took that heaviness. And then later on, you know, of course, my mom and dad were separated. I had two other mothers. Pretty soon my, my dad gets cancer, so we end up in San Diego with doctors. He passes away. You know, he's an honorable man, so they, they buried him where they handed me the, his flag and everything, which was great. So, you know, growing up, he taught me how to keep clean, how to wash myself and all those things, you know. Of course, I didn't know my Clinket culture because I didn't live with my mom. Now I get sent to my mom, and I don't know. What, what was coming, but just realized that when I got there, of course, my mom was there, she was happy to see us, but my life was different, didn't have lights, didn't have electricity, you know, there was not much food. So I started, as we're going, realized that there was a responsibility, and my dad, you know, he left something with me a little bit, so I took that, and me not knowing who I was, I started realizing some of the talents that they list and the tools that was given to me by our relatives that I didn't even know I had. But with that to say, here we go, and here I'm hungry. And I see my family's hungry, so I decide, hey, I go walk across this street. Hey, you got anything I can do? I'm hungry. So then it started this route that I had where the after I got done chopping wood there, she said, oh, stop down over there. They want you to do here. So then I started uh, getting these routes where I was getting a little bit of money. So that was bringing food into the, into the house. You know, but then I found my grandpa's gaff hook and it was broke. 
And I didn't know nothing about fishing or hunting or being out in the wilderness. So I took that gaff foot, cleaned it up, and I got my little brother. So me and Daryl, he's younger than me, and we decided, hey, we're going to go fishing. <laughs> oh, great. So off we go. We go down, and, you know, and we're doing this because we're hungry. Not just because we, we have to or we're going to have fun. But as we're going there, we go all the way out to Gartini Creek, and then we pass the the pond where all the kids are playing in, and we, oh, we gotta go, we gotta go get some fish. So we go over and we start to put things together, add a little pocket knife and that gaff foot, so I made a long stick, and of course, I'm trying to gaff the fish, and it wasn't working. And then I seen this long log sitting out there, so I walked out and noticed that all the fish were down there. So instead of me pulling like this, I set it down on the bottom, and they would come in, and i like, hey! I threw it to my brother. My brother cleaned it up. Pretty soon we had five, six dog salmon, a couple trout. We had a, a steelhead there, so we were pretty happy. And then all of a sudden my brother comes running across, about wipes me out, and, I, and he goes, a bear. And so as we're sitting there, the bear is just right on the log. We're in the water here, water here. We're just right out in the middle, and I just stepped over, and I said, I just started talking to him like he was a person. And of course, he just looked at me, and he looked at the fish, and I said, hey, you can take it if you'd like. You know, I just need a few. And, and of course, he just looked at me, and doop-de-doo, took off. So we were like, hey, it's time to go. <laughs> so we finish cleaning, and we leave all the heads. We take the long staff, we stick it through all the heads, and we're walking, and we're like just cruising along, and my brother back there. And then we get past the pond, and my brother's like, come on, let's go swimming. Everybody's having fun. Of course, high tide, so the water's rushing through the culvert, so you can actually lay in there and go shoot out the culvert. But anyway, so we laid, we laid all our salmon in the pond where we were swimming in, and we went swimming, and then finally, hey, we got to go. Of course, we went home, and we started cutting up the fish. And of course, all the salmon, we put it away in that. That night, the door... Someone knocks on the door, you know, and I'm like with my mom, and, and they say, hey, you know, how are you doing, Pauline? It's like, oh, you guys want to come in and stay? No, no, we're okay. Because she always invites every, anybody that wanted in the evening to come for a place. She'd open the door, and then they would leave next morning. But with that to say, they said they were hungry. They went to the fridge and got some of that, that steelhead that I got. And she grabbed it, and she was going to the door to hand. And I'm jumping around. Hey, that's the fish we put away. And then she closed the door and came in. She talked to me. She said, you know what? He said, when you give, when you give, it'll come back three times more. And you know that next day, the door knocked again. My mom's best friend came, and she goes, hey, you want to go to bingo? It's only 20 bucks. I got 20. They went to bingo. She bingoed $1,000 and brought home lots of food the next day. <laughs> so today, I work with kids, and I teach them how to survive. You know, through the years, even that, even me knocking on the door, I want to say to all the teachers, Bill Hutton, Bob Hutton, Mr. Tom Budd, Ms., uh, Mr. Shelton, all the people that were my educators, they were my family. They kept me online. I appreciate them, but also our elders, our people realized who I was and knew I came from honorable people. So the, the community came and uplifted me and took me in and replaced my father and those other things that I needed. And, you know, so that's why I do what I do today is because 
all the gifts that was given to me. But I want to thank all those people and every one of you and all the people that are part of my life for giving me all these tools. Our next speaker is Rebecca Smith. Rebecca was involuntarily moved to Juno nearly 32 years ago. It turned out okay though, and she came back voluntarily and for good after stints in the Midwest, California, and Nepal, where she taught a women's group how to build Sharpies and helped them grow fodder. Now she spins and weaves and knits gardens and plays soccer when not working to protect the air or help her husband make documentaries. Please uh, help me welcome Rebecca. So in 2012, my dear friend Jesse drew a caribou permit on the Kenai Peninsula and needed a hunting partner. All of his usual suspects were unavailable. I had leave to use and a boss who would let me take nearly three weeks of it at once. I said yes. We planned for a 10-day hunt. We packed sufficient gear and food for 10 days, our biking helmets, and headed off to Anchorage. We spent our first night at Jesse's parents' house, and the next day borrowed their mountain bikes to use as pack animals for when Jesse inevitably got his caribou. We sighted in our rifles, and then we headed out to the Resurrection Pass Trail trailhead. The plan was to spend the first night at the Caribou Crossing cabin, the next day stash the bikes, and head up and make high camp so that we would be ready for Jesse to start hunting when the season opened on Friday. We headed out in the early afternoon, alternately pushing the bikes on the uphill sections and riding them on the flat and downhill sections. Mind you, we were wearing fully loaded external frame backpacks, mine a little on the large side because it belonged to my husband, rifles across our chests, and five days of food on each of our bike racks. It was going pretty well. Downhill sides were, you know, pretty good. About two, two and a half hours into this endeavor, we hit a nice downhill stretch. So we hopped on the bikes. Jesse headed off, and I followed. It was going well, till the trail narrowed. I hit a rock, and I pitched sideways off the trail, directly into the 90-degree edge of a rock embedded in the hillside. Had I hit two feet either direction, I would have hit dirt and been fine. However, the geologist in me apparently decided that it was important to meet the rock up close and personal. Everybody asked if I passed out. No, no, I was swearing immediately. Which is why Jesse knew, 50 yards up the trail, to stop, get off his bike, and book it back up the hill. When he reached me, he untangled me from my bike, took my rifle off my chest, and left my backpack underneath me because it was supporting me in the ditch. Then he said, what do I need to do? I said, get into that side packet of my backpack, find my first aid kit, and give me four ibuprofen and my water bottle. He did, and then he broke out his first aid kit, which had the cleaning wipes and the gauze and the instant ice pack, which Jesse did not know how to trigger. <laughs> I said, give it to me, and I slammed it on the rock. After we got me cleaned up, Jesse said, so do you mind if I take pictures? <laughs> I said, fine, but you have to hand me my camera so I can take a picture of the rock covered in my blood. Yes, for any of you who are my Facebook friends, 
That was my profile picture for years. After we got me cleaned up, we ate, redistributed all of our weight, and booked it back to the trailhead, because it was clear this day of the hunt was over. When we hit a high point, Jesse, ever technical, texted his mother, a doctor, his sister, a nurse, and his wife, Karen, to let them know that we were headed out because I was injured. We made it back to the trailhead, packed everything, and by the time we hit the road to Anchorage, we were getting a string of texts from his mother and his sister reminding us to stop and get more ice and asking where we were gonna end up when we got to Anchorage. We stopped at a gas station, picked up a quart of Gatorade each, I grabbed an ice cream bar for dinner and a cup of ice for my nose. Always carry Ziplocs, they're really useful. And at that point we decided maybe we should call Karen and have her call my husband Damon to let him know what was going on. Shortly thereafter we get a call back from Karen who said, you know, you might wanna just call Damon directly. Oh yeah, duh. So I called, let him know what was up, let him know we were on our way to Anchorage. Damon is happy to tell anyone that his first thought when Karen called was, what is so bad that Jesse is taking Becca to the hospital? Followed very quickly thereafter by, what's not so bad that it's Jesse taking Becca to the hospital and not Mountain Rescue? We made it to Anchorage to have a fun four-hour visit to the ER, where the nurse gave me more Advil after he let me clean up my nose, and the doctor poked both sides of my nose, one side of which went crunch. And then she sent me to get a CAT scan. And yes, indeed, my nose was broken both sides. We spent a day in Anchorage figuring out whether I was capable of still being a hunting partner and decided I should probably bail. Jesse managed to figure out a way to go on day hunts and get his caribou, but that's his story for another day. I made it home with fish for Jesse and his girls, and both Damon and Karen said, you don't look nearly as bad as we thought you were going to. I spent the rest of my two weeks of vacation documenting my daily recovery and making jam from all the fruit in my freezer in case Jesse needed a lot of freezer space for his caribou. However, Jesse made it back the following week with the caribou and gifted me some. We're still great friend family but he hasn't asked me to go on another hunt with him. I'm not sure I blame him. All stories have lessons. My lessons from this story of subsistence and survival? Always wear your bike helmet when you're biking. It saved my life, or at the very least, it saved my eyes, because I hit the rock here. After it hit my helmet, it sliced open my nose and broke both sides of my nose. Secondly, in case of an emergency, accident, or injury, always call all the spouses of everyone involved. This is not the time nor the place to play a game of telephone. And thirdly, deeply treasure the friend who will gift you part of the bounty of his hunt, even if you completely screw up the initial plans. Our last speaker for this evening is Greg Smith. Greg was born and raised in Juneau. After a 10-year hiatus from Juneau, where he lived in Oregon, Hawaii, and Central America, Greg returned to town in 2013. 
He currently works as a staffer for the Alaska House Majority Coalition. When he's not at work, you can find him running, swimming, or doing something related to food, cooking, foraging, gardening, and hunting. Please welcome Greg. Thank you. Uh, so this last year, I went to my first trip to Asia, to the Philippines. Super excited, beautiful place, heard about great beaches and really friendly. Um, and also it was a chance to connect with a place that has a strong connection to Juno. And so as I was kind of planning my trip and figuring out where I wanted to go and looking at pictures and all this stuff, one thing I got really excited was how many miles can I get on this trip? You know, it's like a third of the way around the world. And so I spent hours trying to like figure this out and get like the perfect blend of like cost and convenience and mileage, you know. So I finally found this trip, um, this ticket, June to Seattle, Seattle, Dallas, Fort Worth, change to American there, fly to Hong Kong and then go to Manila on like a regional carrier. So a few days before I'm packing and everything and I was, had gotten out my camping backpack and my hunting backpack and so a little step back. So I just started hunting a couple of years ago. Um, I never hunted when I was a kid, and, but I'm really into it, you know, love being out in the woods and like slowing down and getting a chance to kind of like get in touch with nature. I mean, these last couple of weeks I've been grouse hunting instead of practicing for mudrooms. <laughs> but anyway, just, you know, just love it. And I think part of it also is that like there's this hope that in case of nuclear war, or, like catastrophic global climate change or like zombie apocalypse, like maybe just maybe I could kind of survive. But from my experience, I think I would be really skinny because the main things I get when I go hunting are edible mushrooms when I'm out hunting for deer. <laughs> anyway, so finally pack my bag, have everything kind of ready to go. My friend whose mom is from the Philippines had given me a bag for her to, to take over for friends and for gifts and stuff. Anyway, I get to the airport check things through, and because they're partner airline, they say, oh, we can check it all the way to Hong Kong. And so that was great. And then, you know, then like airport survival starts where you're like, okay, what's the fastest TSA line? And like, how can I find food for under 20 bucks? And why are all these people wearing masks? Should I have a mask? <laughs> what's going on, you know? So finally, you know, fly, long days, long flight. Fort Worth to Hong Kong is the longest flight in the American thing, you know, 16 hours, you fly up over Alaska and down through Russia and everything. So get there and everything's working out well. Like I have plenty of time. Uh, I've, you know, I'm like, okay, I've done this right as I'm walking through um, getting my bags. And so I go to check in and the woman at the regional airlines like, oh, you can only check one bag, but just carry that backpack through. I was like, okay, great. So I'm standing in security and then I see as my bag's going through the x-ray, they pull it aside. And as they're going to like some of the pockets, I see them pull this little, my deer call out of um, my hip belt pocket. And I was like, what's the problem with the deer call? And then of course it wasn't the problem with the deer call, it was the problem with the two 30-30 rifle rounds that were in that pocket with the deer call. You know, so they look at me and I look at them and it's, you know, and they're like that way and their, their TSA goes over and you know, first it's them and the questions, you know, are these your bullets and do you have a gun and what are you doing and that kind of thing. And then the cops come and they ask me the same questions and then the detective comes and then, then there's the SWAT team and then the rest of the SWAT team and there's like 15 people with guns all around me and I was like, want a selfie so bad, but you know, like not wise, right? 
so they're asking me all these questions and laughing at these like tiny pink Speedo swim trunks that I had brought, you know, just like, great, just like loving it. And from that conversation, I learned two things that one, um, Hong Kong police cannot fathom and are super appalled that in the United States, we do not need a permit or a license for ammunition or a gun. And two, that they just had no idea what a job of lobbyist was. Just <laughs> So anyway, then, am I going to catch my flight? You know, and they're like, definitely not. Go get the other bag. And as I start to realize that I have no idea what's in this other bag, you know, I didn't look at all. And I was like, you know, it was like endangered species or like bricks of contraband or something. And but thankfully, it was just like the survival essentials, you know, towels and coffee and Toblerone and stuff. So anyway, go to the police station. In my mind, my main concern is like, am I going to be here for a long time? Or are they ripping me off or whatever? But actually, not too bad for the wear. I mean, I lost 300 bucks, spent five hours there. Probably lost a couple more minutes of my life when up on the wall that in the room I was in, there was a step-by-step -step illustrated guide on how to give a strip search. But I left unviolated, made it, made it on the rest of my trip, and it was awesome. And, you know, so being over there, and just one thing I remember is being, like, thinking how grateful I am to be in a place where we get to do more than survive. We can, you know, fulfill our dreams and, like, thrive. And, you know, in terms of food, like, our problem with food is probably that we eat too much of it. But just so thankful. And also on my trip, I learned that the Hong Kong authorities are super legit. It wasn't a trick at all, you know. Anyway, they called me, and I started getting these calls when I got back to town, late night, random number, and it was someone from Hong Kong asking for me to send a photo of my uh, hunting license so they could verify and send it over, and they sent me an email back actually just a couple of weeks ago that says, your bail money is now available for pickup in Hong Kong. <laughs> and so I'm going to Japan in the fall, so I've started to look for those plane tickets that are just that perfect blend of cost convenience, and mileage that also has a stop in Hong Kong. Thank you. This is KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded on May 10th, 2017. The theme for the evening was Subsistence and Survival. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from Alita Buss, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Steve Suing, Kristen Stouter, and Sarah Hannon. Music by Carl Reese and Terry Schwartz. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night. I need something to do. Keep my mind off the news. Keep my mind off the news.